Hello there, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor, publisher, president, imperial wizard of Crux Catholic Media Incorporated. And this is Last Week in the Church, the show where we serve up kind of reheated news that's already happened, but try to spice it up a bit and, uh, and turn it into something delicious. As you can tell from those analogies, I like to think of this show as a kind of meal. And so here's what we've got on the menu for you today. We begin with the U.S. bishops either decided to punt or to pastor on the issue of pro-choice politicians in communion, depending on how you want to look at it. Next, the Vatican's trial of the century may end with a whimper rather than a bang, we'll explain. Pope Francis had a pretty rough week. We're going to step through all of it for you. That's what we've got for you this week, so please stick around. All right, we begin with the fall meeting of the U.S. bishops, which took place last week in Baltimore. Basically, the bishops meet twice a year. The fall meeting is always in Baltimore. The spring meeting rotates. But this has been the first time since the COVID era that they've actually been able to meet in person. The last two meetings were held via Zoom or Skype or something, some piece of technology. Anyway, it was a virtual assembly. This time, they actually physically got together in Baltimore, and it was keenly anticipated assembly because of the hot-button issue of whether the bishops were going to decide to deny communion to Catholic politicians who have pro-choice voting records, that is, who support abortion rights. And obviously, right now, that would include the President of the United States. President Joe Biden, in addition to the Speaker of the House, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Now, the vehicle in which this was supposed to maybe happen was a document that the bishops had voted last year to prepare on the Eucharist. And there was talk that it was going to contain a section on Eucharistic coherence, that is, the rules you need to follow in order to demonstrate communion with the church and therefore be worthy of reception of the Eucharist. And there was some speculation that it might contain some language about politicians that would have implications for the Bidens and Pelosi's of the world. And this wasn't just journalists making things up out of thin air, because there were actually bishops talking about that. One thinks of Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of San Francisco, coincidentally, Pelosi's home diocese. Or the bishop of Bishop Strickland in Tyler, Texas, Bishop Thomas Tobin in Rhode Island, and others had been suggesting uh, that they felt it was time for the bishops to sort of take a stand on this issue, particularly when the commander-in-chief is a Roman Catholic, but on this issue, in any event, is at odds with church teaching. And their concern, of course, is that that creates scandal. It, it sets a bad example, and that perhaps the bishops needed to take a stand. So in the run-up, there was this sense that this might be a game of kind of high-stakes political poker potentially involving the president. In the end, however, none of that really happened. The document that the bishops adopted on the Eucharist is mum, mute, says nothing about whether pro-choice politicians should get communion. It, it contains a line about how public officials have a special responsibility to embody the faith, but it's, it's vague enough to have no direct consequences whatsoever. 
There was no dramatic floor debate on this question. There was no showdown at the OK Corral. Instead, what the bishops decided to do is focus in this document, not so much on politics, but on faith, specifically Eucharistic faith. Of course, they're all well aware that not so long ago, there was a poll by the Gallup organization that found that one-third of American Catholics don't believe that the bread and wine used in the Mass literally, physically, become the body and blood of Christ. Now, that is a pretty core Catholic doctrine. It's like hard to imagine anything that cuts to the quick in terms of what Catholics are supposed to believe more than that. And when you have a situation where one-third of your flock doesn't share that belief, you know, I, I think any bishop worth his salt is probably going to be concerned about that. And so that, they, they wanted, in a, in a sense, to keep their eyes on the prize. And so this document is designed to promote a multi-year renaissance, revival in Eucharistic faith. This will include things like expanding the practice of Eucharistic adoration in parishes and dioceses, organizing teaching events around the Eucharist, preaching on it, and so on. All of which is intended to culminate, and, and this, I suppose, is the big ticket item from Baltimore, in a National Eucharistic Congress that the bishops want to hold in 2024. By the way, in Indianapolis, no word yet on whether they intend to, to host it at the Speedway, where the Indianapolis 500 takes place, but somewhere in the city of Indianapolis. And of course, the bishops are not saying this out loud, but everybody knows that when a country is holding a national-level Eucharistic Congress, the customary thing is to invite the Pope to come to, to lead the final Mass. I mean, Pope Francis just went to Hungary, for instance, to do that for the Hungarians. And so this creates the possibility of the Pope, assuming it is Francis three years from now, making a return trip to the United States. Remember, he came in 2015 for a World Congress of Families, this would be a return visit to wrap up a, a Eucharistic Congress. Remains to be seen whether all of this genuinely kickstarts a revival in Eucharistic faith and practice in the American church, but we can at least say fairly definitively that the bishops did not wade in to the heavily contested political waters that some expected. Now, of course, in a way, even if they had, it wouldn't have made a difference because a bishop's conference has no power to dictate decisions on things like this to individual bishops. Bishops who want to take a hard line on this could still do that regardless of what the conference had done. Bishops who want to take a softer line could still do that regardless. But what it does indicate, I think, is the bishops did not want to put on a show of division uh, at this meeting. Instead, they wanted to put on a show of unity around this core belief in the Eucharist. Now, some will describe that as a choice to be pastors rather than politicians. That is, as a brave and farsighted approach by the bishops. Others will say they punted, they, they ducked the issue, they ran and hid. I suppose that is in the eye of the beholder. What is clear is that the next three years, the Eucharist will be front and center in terms of what we are hearing from Catholic officialdom in America. All right, we shift gears from America to Rome, where the great soap opera of the last few months has been 
the Vatican's so-called trial of the century. This is the trial of 10 individuals, including the for the first time, a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the Pope's former chief of staff, and a handful of corporate entities for various forms of financial crime, embezzlement, thievery, basically, misappropriation, basically having their hands caught in the cookie jar. It centers on a $400 million land deal in London orchestrated by the Vatican's Secretary of State. By the way, using money from Peter's Pence, that's the annual collection from rank-and-file Catholics around the world, usually billed as a way to support papal charities, that is, feed starving children in Africa, not so much buy high-end real estate in Chelsea. But nevertheless, that's what happened. Now, this was supposed to be kind of landmark demonstration of the effectiveness of Pope Francis's financial reforms and a symbol of a new era of transparency and accountability. So far, however, the prosecution has bungled the case so badly in the eyes of many observers that it's not even clear this trial is really going to get off the ground. There was a hearing last week, the latest in a series of hearings, in which the issue of video and audio recordings of interrogations conducted by the Vatican gendarmes, that's its police force and prosecutors in this case, that were supposed to have been turned over to defense lawyers in August, were finally turned over last month in October, but with about two hours of cuts, and for which no explanation was given. They were just justified as motives of the investigation, but you know, who knows what in the world that means. That contentious issue came up. The court ruled that prosecutors have to turn over the, the stuff they cut out now. We will see if that happens. The first time they were hit with an order to turn these things over, they just flatly refused. We'll see if they try to play that card again. It is clear the judge in this case is getting frustrated. However, based on the recordings that were turned over, there is a new issue that has emerged. Because at one point, a prosecutor is heard during an interrogation of the Vatican star witness in this case, saying that prosecutors had gone to the Pope to ask him some questions, and he had said X. Now, that was news to defense lawyers, that prosecutors had had a session with Pope Francis to discuss this case. It had never been revealed before. Defense lawyers obviously began demanding access to transcripts or recordings of that interview. The, the prosecutors then said, oh, actually, it never happened. We were referring to a public interview the Pope gave. We never had a conversation with him. Now, <laughs> one of two things is true. Either they're lying or they genuinely confused a public interview with a conversation they'd actually had with the Pope, and if that's the case, doesn't do much for their credibility. Presiding Justice Giuseppe Pignatoni, in delivering his rulings on the various motions at this last hearing, said, it is obvious that we weren't ready to start, we're still not ready to start, and if we ever start, dot, 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 that if being the key word, he seemed to be signaling that he's not 100% convinced that when the dust is settled, there's going to be any basis to move forward. We'll see how it plays out, but it certainly does look like the prosecution case is in serious trouble. And then, uh, but this wasn't the only 
sort of speed bump that Pope Francis and his team hit last week. It was in many ways a, a week full of lemons for the Pope. But beyond the trial, you had three other things that happened. Pietro Orlandi, the brother of Emanuela Orlandi, who, is, who was, is a 13-year-old girl who disappeared from her family in 1983. Her family lived inside the Vatican. Her father worked for the papal household. Ever since, there has been speculation that the Vatican knows more than it's saying. Pietro has staged a demonstration outside the Vatican every year on the anniversary of Emanuela's disappearance. That happened last week. And he said not only does he think the Vatican is lying, but he said pointedly that he believes Pope Francis is the worst of them all, that he's raised the wall against coming clean higher than anyone else, and he blames him personally and basically issued an appeal to conscience. Now, you know, whatever you make of that, not a great optic for the Pope. All right, uh, here's something else that happened last week. Don Julian Caron, who was the leader of the Comunione e Liberazione movement, Communion and Liberation, resigned unexpectedly. It kind of came out of a clear blue sky. Now, the Communion and Liberation folks, they are known for probably being a little bit right of center. At the beginning of the Francis Papacy, there was this read that maybe they were going to be part of the in-house opposition. But Father Coron rejected all of that from the beginning. He put the organization four square behind Pope Francis. He's widely considered a really nice, sweet guy. I mean, personally, you'll just never meet a more mild-mannered, nicer guy, less full of himself than Father Julian Coron. Nevertheless, the perception is that he was forced out under Vatican pressure because they just don't trust him or the organization. It was another example, in the eyes of critics anyway, of the team around Pope Francis perhaps being a bit unnecessarily vindictive. Finally, there's this guy by the name of Francesco Mangiacapra. Literally, that name means eating goats. Make of that what you will. But he describes himself, Mangiacapra, as an ex-gigolo, that is, a former male prostitute. Now, this is the 21st century, so naturally, this former male prostitute has a book out. And he is making the rounds doing TV and radio interviews to try to sell this book. And during one of these recent appearances, Manja Capra claimed that he had had at least 50 Catholic priests, some of them in the Vatican, among his regular clientele. And he said that he had prepared a dossier identifying these 50 priests who were availing themselves of his services and had presented it to the Vatican, but nothing has been done. Now, again, make of it what you will, but the optic here uh, is that once again, the Vatican under Pope Francis, or under anybody, I suppose, but the, the Vatican is sort of turning a blind eye, blowing off, so to speak, a whistleblower and refusing to take a look, a hard look at a real scandal. And so collectively, it just, yeah, it's not going to go down in history as one of the best weeks in the pontificate of Francis. But, you know, if you think about it, there is a common thread running through everything, all of the, the speed bumps the Pope hit this week. That is the trial, the Caron thing, the Manjacapra thing, in et al., 
in, and it is transparency. In every case, there is a sense the Vatican is hiding something. That was Pietro Orlandi's charge about his sister. That's Manja Capra's charge. Uh, that's the charge of defense lawyers in the trial. And therefore, the antidote to all of this would be greater transparency. And, and as it happens, that's right in the Pope Francis wheelhouse. It's one of the buzzwords uh, of his reform. So the question, therefore, is whether the Pope, on the back of this week of lemons, can make lemonade out of it all by doubling down on his commitment to transparency and insisting that there be clear public answers to the questions these various episodes raise. All right, that is our show for this week. If you are inclined, please go onto the social media platform of your choice and give us a retweet, give us a like, give us a thumbs up, write us a, a nice review someplace. We are trying to get this show before the eyeballs of as many people as possible because we are determined to build every last morsel of taste out of our stale bucket full of news. Want to give a big thank you and shout out to our friends at Longbeard Digital Media, digital marketing and design company. They are the, the architects of this show and it is through their generosity and their expertise that it is possible. Also want to encourage you to find full coverage of all the stories we've talked about on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. For the next seven days, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy. We will see you again next Monday.